Good morning again, Grace, for the third time. Uh, Please open with me in your Bibles, if you have one, to the uh, book of Matthew. We're pausing today to remember and record our Savior's birth. Hannah read from the passage in Luke. um, Out of the four Gospels, two of the Gospel writers uh, recount different aspects of the birth of Christ. And today, I'd like us to look at Matthew chapter 2. And as you're turning there, I want to ask you a question is... is, uh, I know many of us have tried to figure out what do we do Christmas morning when it's Sunday in your house? I mean, when do you open presents? When do you come together as a family? And what do you do? Some of the traditions that you might have are changed a little bit on Christmas morning. I know for us it was. We were going to be busy today celebrating uh, together, so we opened up our presents yesterday. And, and I was reminded as I was watching my kids just tear open their gifts and you know, they've gotten older over the years, and they start to change, but I'm watching my son, who's uh, just turned two years old, and how he's not just opening his present, but everybody else's. He, he started to figure out that, hey, I can tear this open, and there's neat stuff in there. Whether it says my name or not, doesn't matter. So he's just grabbing, and, and he's got those fun facial expressions that you can't, you can't create. You can't, he just, oh, you know, ah, and he doesn't, he doesn't really say words. He goes, ah, <laughs> oh, <laughs> you know. He's just excited as he, he sees stuff. And then we have to tell him, say, thank you. And he's like, ankle, ankle. He's just so grateful at all this stuff he's received. And I'm reminded just of our, our kids and, and how each child has something different that they offer. And, and, and those who are here today that are parents, you know what that's like. Each child is different, right? Now, I know some of us, when we got married, we were ready for marriage. I mean, some of us were and some of us definitely were not. But I know for me, I was ready for marriage, at least what I thought <laughs> what marriage was like. But one thing I wasn't ready for, and I wanted, I was the one that pushed it, I, when a baby arrived. You remember that time where you found out that you were, gonna, you were expecting? And life suddenly was completely different than it was before. Do you remember that? I know, I know for me, life changed overnight. There were all these things that I didn't realize that babies brought with it. <laughs> I mean, I suddenly was getting up at hours of the night that I never imagined I would get up before. I wasn't expecting to see that. I, I, I was doing things that I never would see myself do, that I used to see parents do, and I went, I'll never do that as a parent. Sticking my noses in places that I never would stick before. Uh, I never, ever had a clean garment after that. Everything was stained with something else, and... And I, and I just am reminded of how many things change. Because, you know, when a baby comes into our life, it changes everything. Everything about us. Where we go. What we do. Suddenly, even with the baby, we didn't go out to eat at the same time we went before. We went at like 4.30 for dinner. And we realized that there, everybody else was there with kids. Because you didn't want your kids to get in the way. And, and you go shopping. And then when you had more kids, that changed. I mean, when you have two kids, you each can take one. Three kids, now you're in zone defense. And, and how things go and how we go shopping and all these different things that are changed. But, you know, that first baby, though, just changed everything for us. And I'm reminded that when Jesus was born, His birth changed everything. The whole world. As we heard just even last week... Um, when we were talking about Larry King, and Larry King said if he could interview one person, he would interview God, and he would ask God one question, did you indeed have a son? Because if, if so, then that would define history for me. That baby changed everything that we know. And not just us as, as, as parents, but it changed the entire world. No longer was the world different. 
I mean, the world was different after that. The book of Acts says that the time of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people to repent through the One that He has appointed, and that is Jesus Christ. That God visited His creation by the Creator assuming the flesh of the creation. It's a phenomenal thought. So today, I'd like us to look at this account in Matthew, and we're going to read it together. And then we're going to see how this baby changes everything. We're in Matthew chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through verse 18. So it's our tradition here at Village Bible Church to stand for the reading of God's Word. So please stand with me. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men came from the east to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken out of the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that, had been that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let's pray. Father, we come into your presence once again asking to behold, to understand, to try and possibly comprehend the mystery of how you could visit your creation. Lord, please show us how this baby changes hearts and lives, not only then but now. May our life truly reflect who you are, that your name might receive honor and glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I'd like us to revisit the details just for a moment. This baby would have a very inauspicious arrival. Rather than have him born to an earthly king, as we, one would expect, or come from some family of privilege, um, God shows Joseph and Mary, a young Middle Eastern couple, betrothed to be married. Mary, if you are unfamiliar, and I think most are familiar, is that she was a very young woman. And in Jewish society, um, couples got married much younger. 
The girl would be between 14, 15 years of age. She'd be married. The young man was usually sometimes five to ten years older. They were betrothed, which was a little bit greater than our engagement. It was a legally binding um, agreement between two families. So it was greater than engagement, but less than a marriage. There was no consummation. So Mary was probably a teenager of marriageable age, while Joseph was likely a bit older, and occupationally he was a carpenter. Now, because of this decree of uh, Caesar Augustus, all of the Roman world, which under Israel at that time was under Roman rule, should be registered. They were forced to travel to Bethlehem while Mary was at the end of her pregnancy. She was nine months and ready to pop, and she's traveling. And Can you imagine, ladies, if you've ever been in a car and you've been pregnant and you're all the bumps and stops, can you imagine traveling on a donkey? <laughs> a great deal. It's not probably the most comfortable thing <laughs> to be done. Now, due to the mass of travelers in Bethlehem, um, the couple was unable to secure adequate housing. We're all familiar with this story for the evening and were forced to lodge in a stable. Now, already in labor, Mary gave birth to a baby boy that evening whom they named Jesus. And he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, which was a feeding trough for animals. He was soon visited by local shepherds, as we read in Luke chapter 1. And eight days later, he was circumcised. Forty days after that, he was taken to Jerusalem, presented at the temple, according to Luke chapter 2, where it was prophesied that he would be a light for revelation to the Gentile world and for glory to God's people Israel. And from there, his family returned to Bethlehem, where they moved into a house. And that is when they were visited by the wise men. It wasn't quite like the video that we saw, because they came to him, if we, we just read, in the house. And they, when they saw the star, they were already actually in Babylon or Persia. Now, the word magi there, we use for wise men, is the Greek word magioi. And it's, it's simply a way to describe these men who were skilled in ancient arts. And they were probably Persian or Babylonian. They were really schooled in the law and the sacred writings of the Babylonians and the Egyptians. I mean, not Egyptians, but Babylonians and the Persians. Now, remember, Israel had been in captivity in Babylon sometime before, and the Jews had lived interspersed with them. So these men were undoubtedly familiar with the sacred writings of the Jewish people. And they knew the prophecies that there would come from Israel a ruler, one who would come to shepherd God's people. So they, they come to Bethlehem of Judea. Now Judea is about, or, or, um, Bethlehem is about six miles south of Jerusalem, which means that Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and that city had produced Davidic kings over time. It was the city where David himself had been born, the great King David. And it was a small town that scholars debate the size of. Some believe it could range from the size of 500 to 2,000 people. And it would have swelled during this time if all these individuals were packing into the city for the, uh, because of Caesar's decree. And it, um, it was a very small town. Um, now it is a war-torn town. If you've ever got a chance to go to Bethlehem, I got to go and travel there in 1998 with the Moody Chorale when I was singing, and it was not at all like the carols presented it. It was not this quiet place at all. There were people just chain-smoking on the street. There were diamond stores all around. Diamonds are a precious commodity. They're polished and sent off to the rest of the world, so we had a lot of people going into diamond stores. There's bullet-ridden walls and cars that are burnt out. And you go to these ancient churches, and it, within it's like a tinfoil star called the Star of Bethlehem, where, of course, no one knows exactly where certain places had in Israel. And, and uh, wherever there was a supposed his, uh, historical site, people just build churches on them. 
So it's not at all what you would expect. It's not at all like the, car- the, the carols. And now it's even surrounded by this big giant wall. Not just Bethlehem, but the whole... Because it's in the, the Palestinian area of Israel. So it's not at all what you see in, in the... Or what you imagine in the, in the carols. Now we learn that... Uh, but I digress. Now we learn here that these wise men came from the east, which was about 800 miles away with the question... Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. These guys came all the way from Babylon. And that was because they'd seen his star in the sky. They were also experts in astrology. And in the ancient world, many people looked to the stars to understand the world. Now being experts with Babylonian and Persian law, in addition to other sacred writings, they were familiar with the Jewish prophecy. And they believed though this prophecy. And they acted accordingly. In other words, His birth, uh, Jesus' birth, it involves them, but it also involves us because we can see through them that Jesus' birth, this baby changes our pursuits. That's the first point that we need to see. This baby changes everything. It changes what we pursue in life. It calls us from where we're at to a different place to be with God, to see Him, and to see what He's doing, to submit ourselves to Him as He is the Lord of our lives and to order our lives accordingly. And this pursuit involves three different things. First of all, it involves leaving home. Now, it doesn't mean we literally leave our home to follow Jesus, but it does mean that everything else is secondary to following Christ. We see this exemplified in John Bunyan's classic book, A Pilgrim's Progress, where Christian leaves everything to follow what Jesus has for him. We see um, this when God calls us, He calls us to Himself, but He calls us away from what we know to follow Him. We see that exemplified in the call of Abraham in the Old Testament. He was to leave his father's land and go to the land that God would show him. God calls us to follow Him wholeheartedly, to apply His Word, to let His Word be the directing force of our life, to leave behind everything that we know that we are comfortable with to follow Him and do what the Word of God tells us to do. So it not only involves leaving home, but it involves seeking something. And that is seeking Him. Following Christ is exactly that. Following Him. These men were seeking Christ. And it led them to a foreign land. And to a foreign king. And a foreign kingdom. But they were willing to do that. They were willing to sacrifice everything to seek Him. Now how many of us are willing to do that today? How many of us are willing to seek Jesus with all of our heart? With all of our soul? With all of our mind? I mean, if we don't have it as the most convenient thing in the world, we don't do it. If we can't just roll out of the floor and microwave it, we don't want it. But that's not what God wants. God wants us to seek Him with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind. God delights when we seek Him. As it says in the book of Jeremiah, you will seek Me and find Me when you seek Me with all your heart. I'm reminded when my wife and I were dating, there was a period of time where we were separated. She was, I was in Illinois and she was in Florida. And I longed to be near her. And there wasn't anything that was going to keep me from her. And finally, I just got in my car one day and I just drove to Florida. I didn't tell her. I completely surprised her. There wasn't any distance that I wasn't willing to travel to see her. And the fact is, is we seek what we delight in. The question is, is what do we find greatest delight in? Is it sports? Is it success? Our career? Our comfort? Prestige? Power? Pleasure? What do we delight in? What do we seek more than anything else? And if we try to put anything else above the Lord, if we try to seek anything greater than Him, then it's sin. 
We can only seek God. God must be first priority in our life. And then once we leave everything to follow Him, seek Him, we give Him honor. See, that's what our pursuit involves, giving Him honor. Look at verse 11. And going into the house, there's that house. Jesus is probably about two years old by this time. They saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. We read about the male children in Bethlehem being killed that were two years or older. That's how we know that um, Jesus was about two years old. And considering the size of the small village, there could have been between 10 to 30 boys of that age. And with Herod's question as to when the star appeared, may have given him an estimated time of birth for his challenger. Because see, Herod was threatened by this ruler. We're going to get to that in a moment. But these men honored Jesus with their gifts. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. The number of gifts attributed to the tradition that there were three wise men. When the reality is we don't know. They probably came with a huge retinue of individuals because they were probably court officials. So we have them offering their three gifts, but there could quite possibly have been Many, many more. Now, frankincense is resin used ceremonially for the only incense. It's the only incense permitted on the altar. It was to be used on the altar according to the Old Testament and the, uh, Jew, in the Jewish tabernacle. Myrrh is sap that's used in incense, perfume, and is a stimulant tonic. And then, of course, gold, which was the precious metal that we still value greatly today. They honored Him with very precious possessions, but their most precious possession is what I'd like us to draw attention to, that they knelt down and they worshipped Him. That's the greatest honor that we can give is our worship. Do you know that every single person worships something? It's an ideal. It's either a person. It could be uh, success. It could be power. It could be privilege. It could be status. It could be one's image. We all worship something in our world today. But here, they're honoring and worshiping God, the most precious thing that we have is our worship. That's why Satan sought worship. He wants worship because it's the most intimate and pure thing. The essence of who we are. It's our heart. God wants our heart. So we give Him our worship, which is the greatest honor that we can give. But Jesus' coming in the flesh, it also shows something else. I mean, this baby, His coming shows something else entirely, and we can see that exemplified within Herod. And it, it's, his birth condemns our pride. Condemns our pride. See, babies have a way of showing us how self, selfish and sinful we are. Is that not true? Those that are parents? I mean, you find out how quickly how selfish you are, how, willing, how much you don't want to serve, how much you don't want to, to take care of another individual, how your life is totally now revolving around that child. When that child cries... You are the one that has to change it. You are the one that has to feed it. You are the one that has to, to be holding and loving and taking care. And it shows us how selfish we are because we don't want to do that. We just want to say, stop, here, someone else. But this, this child changes everything and it condemns our pride. See, it's in the days of Herod the king. Now, when he had heard about Jesus' birth, the Scripture says that he was troubled, as well as was all of Jerusalem. Now, this is a very important historical detail. We just grant, glance over. When we read the story, we don't think about all of these details, but it's the details that really draw out the, the story and what's going on there. See, the family of Herod appears several times in Scripture. But this Herod is the very first Herod. There's different Herods. They have Herod the Great. They have you know, Herod Agrippa, Herod Agrippa II. They have all these different names. But this is the very first Herod. 
Herod. And he ruled Israel from 37 to 4 B.C. And he was an Idumean, which means that he was half Jewish and half Gentile. And he was appointed king of the Jews under the authority of Rome. Now the Romans didn't like him because he was half Jewish. But Jews, of course, didn't like him because he was working for the Romans. And he, he really didn't have any claim to the throne. And he was more of a puppet throne, a puppet ruler. And he tried to hold on to it. See, Jesus' birth, though, because Jesus was born in Bethlehem, which was where the Davidic king came. He, he was supposed to be a ruler born there. It was a threat to his power. It threatened his position, and it threatened his pride. Now, it's interesting here, this pride, as, as his, Jesus' birth does condemn our pride, his pride involves three or four different things that I'd like us to draw attention to. First of all, our pride involves satisfying our sinful desires. As Woody Allen once said, the heart wants what it wants. The heart wants what it wants, right? I always laugh when I hear people say, oh, I, you know, it's in my heart. Well, the heart is deceptively wicked and desperately sick. Who can understand it? As the scripture says. Matter of fact, it says that we're in desperate need of a heart transplant without God's intervention. We would just be left with this horrible heart condition. But God performs spiritual surgery and gives us a new heart when we come to know Jesus. He gives us a heart transplant. But we still have that remnant of pride within us that will do anything to satisfy its sinful desires. See, that's what I think about Herod. He was willing to do anything to hold on to his position. He would do anything in his power to, to satisfy his sin. We all know what that's like. Have you ever had a sin in your life? I mean, a sin that you just kept secret from anybody and you would do anything to nourish that sin, to, to feed it, to, do, to, to just give to it. You hated yourself while doing it, but you kept doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. You'd do anything to satisfy your sinful desires. I was reading a story, uh, even this morning, about the Mercury News reported. It's out of the Silicon Valley. Ran a story about a family that was robbed of their Christmas presents and their dog yesterday, or day before yesterday. I mean, what kind of person would break into a house and steal children's Christmas presents and then their dog? I mean, come on. And the parents even said, you know, it's, it was $600 worth of Christmas presents. And they said, but it's the dog that we're going to miss most of all, just to, to steal the dog. I just hope that they don't put reindeer antlers on it and try to pull a sleigh with it. You remember the Grinch. Stay with me. Man, Christmas morning, you guys need to wake up. I had you in the beginning. But we see that we'll do anything to satisfy our sinful desires. The question that I have for each one of us is this. How far are we willing to go to hide it? If that's the case, then... We're acting in pride and jumping in sin and catering to our flesh. But see, for Herod, it goes further. He gathers the, together the religious scholars of Jerusalem. Herod learns that it was in Bethlehem where God's Messiah, this ruler, rightful ruler, would be born. Uh, it was problematic on a number of fronts. The city was about six miles south of Jerusalem, as I mentioned, and it was the birthplace of King, uh, the great and revered King David. Now, anyone who could claim David as a descendant who was born in Bethlehem would be considered a threat to Herod because he had a more legitimate uh, right to the throne. Not to mention, it was prophesied that God would bring forth a ruler for Israel from Bethlehem. 
according to Micah chapter 5. And this, this Messiah would usher in a new era of security and peace in Israel. He would boast an ancient lineage and it was, that was far and away greater than Herod could ever produce. Combining the history of Bethlehem with Micah's prophecy, along with the wise men's inquiry surrounding the king of the Jews, Herod had due cause for alarm. So he did what was unimaginable. He ordered the execution of infants. It, as we saw before, it could be uh, between 10 and 30 infants, depending on the size of the town. Because see, pride is selfish and competitive by nature and cannot handle whenever there is a threat to it. Which is why we can also see that pride goes so far to be eliminating all competitors. See, not only does pride seek to satisfy its sinful desires, but it will eliminate all competitors. Anything that is considered a threat will be removed. See, Herod, he ruled absolutely and ruthlessly. And during his reign, he suffered from great paranoia, knowing that he had no legitimate right to his throne. He was a paranoid tyrant, going so far as to have his wife, several sons, and other relatives murdered. He had them executed. Anybody that would consider a threat at all to his throne, he had them killed. And even they offered some possibility of a challenge. They were quickly eliminated. It was no wonder then that Herod sought to ascertain the exact place and time of the recently born king of the Jews so that he might have him executed. Now the Roman emperor Augustus made a joke about Herod. He said, I would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Just because he knew that if you were born to Herod, your life expectancy would be considerably low. It's no wonder then that when the Magi showed up talking about a king, he would it would cause him to order an execution. He was a delusional megalomaniac who was paranoid at keeping his position at all costs. Think of Gaddafi and Saddam Hussein and you're starting to get the picture. They eliminated anyone who was a threat. See, when pride is confronted, it must react and will do so without hesitation or reservation in order to maintain itself. See, pride idolizes itself to the point where any threat must be taken out. We will take out anything that threatens our sin. You can see this illustrated in a lot of ways in our world today. I mean, think about our own sin. We'll accuse others. We'll try to explain it. We'll try to hide it. We'll try to, uh, we will try to do anything that, that threatens to remove it from our life. I know of a woman who had such an idol in her life um, of image and status, not only in her own life, but in her church, that when someone found out about her marriage being a sham, her and her husband would come to church, they would hear the Word of God preached, they would nod their heads, and they would go off, and they would go home, and they went to separate rooms, they never talked, they never nourished any marriage relationship at all whatsoever. It was a complete sham. And when the church leaders found out about that marriage, they sought to, to speak to the man to, and his wife, to try to reconcile, to really develop that marriage. But when the wife found out that the leadership knew the marriage was a sham, they just removed themselves from the church altogether. Because rather than confront the sin in her life, the image, the idol that she had, because she didn't want anyone else to think less of her, that she just removed herself from it and refused to deal with it. And then thus, they'll go to, the, go to another place and they're just perpetuating it all over again. Because that's what sin does and pride does. It will eliminate anything, anything that gets in its way. Now, we will do anything and everything to satisfy our pride, to nourish it. We'll eliminate all competitors. That's what pride does. And our pride means that we will also lie to get what we want. 
See, that's what Herod does. He lies to get what he wants. Look in verse 8. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I, may, I too may come and worship him. He could care less. He didn't want to know. He wasn't going to worship them. He would do anything to find out where this child was. And he's feigning religiosity. He's feigning faith just to, to get them to tell him what to do. It's amazing to me. He'll lie to get what he wants. He's a perfect politician. I was in a restaurant the other day, and there was a, a, a man who was running for office in this area. And he, he's handing us his card, and he's telling us his agenda, and we're telling him stuff. And, and I, uh, the people that I was with, they were questioning, me, questioning him on his platform. And then as soon as he finds out that we're, we're, we were Christians, change the conversation. Then he starts catering to what we want to hear. Politicians do that. And Herod did it, except he didn't have any restrictions. I mean, he's going to eliminate all competitors. We'll lie to get what we want. That's what pride will do. We will lie to others. We'll lie to ourselves. Lies are simply trying statements by which we create a fake world in which we want to live. And that world is exactly that fake. You see this when people try to remove themselves from from church. They would rather believe the lie that the world tells than deal with the reality and the truth that God condemns their actions as sin. They don't want to hear the Word of God spoken. They don't want to be with the people of God. They'd rather remove themselves entirely from church because they'd rather be happier in their sin. But the reality is, is they're living in a fake world and that world will come crumbling down the day that Christ comes again. And they will see what it is that they have really chosen to do, which is an abomination in the sight of God. We can see through Herod also that how we can easily be following the course of this world. Following the course of this world. Pride is a love for self and a love for the world, and it's something that we all desire. We all want at one time or another. As Paul wrote in the book of Ephesians, he says that we all once walked We were all following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Which means this. Basically, Herod was looking out for number one. And our world today says, look out for number one and don't care for anybody else. That's what Herod was doing. And that's what we are all tempted to do. We're all individualistic Americans. It's all about us. We become the masters of our own destiny. We are the ones who determine and become the sole arbitrators or arbiters of truth. We must make sure that we are always continuing to place ourselves under God's authority and His Word, following what it says, making sure that we're not following the course of this world. Now, if you look at that, what you've just written, those four points, satisfying our sinful ways and sinful wants, eliminating all competitors, lying to get what we want, following the course of this world, the first one begins with an S. The second one begins with an E. The third one begins with an L. And the fourth one begins with an F. And it's spelled self. It's what it's all about. When Jesus comes, He puts a death to self. And He commands us to put death to self. To take up our cross daily and follow Him. To follow Him. To die to self and embrace Him. Herod was looking out for Number one, following the course of this world. Read some of the lies of the Caesars at that time and you can see that he was just doing what everyone else was doing. Lying, stealing, and killing whoever got in his way. 
But God wouldn't have the wise men be pawns in Herod's devious plot. So he warned them in a dream. And they returned home by a different route, according to Matthew chapter 2, verse 21. Even though the wise men had escaped Herod's grasp, Joseph's family was still at risk. Having been warned in a dream, Joseph escapes with his family to Egypt until Herod died and God brought them back. Angered at being slighted by the wise men and unaware of Jesus' escape, Herod ordered the execution of many little boys in an attempt to extinguish any possible heirs to the throne. Even his birth brings about death. It's amazing to me. I was reading even this morning, I don't know if you've seen it in the news, that in Nigeria, some Islamic extremists blew up two churches on Christmas Day. Christmas Day. 25 people had been killed. Many more were injured. It's amazing what Jesus' birth and Jesus' life invokes from those who refuse to follow Him. We are not to be living according to the ways of the world. We must choose a different path. Just like when Jesus and Mary, had, not Jesus, when Joseph and Mary had gone to Bethlehem and they inquired and there was no room for them for the inn. Of course, today, there's, no, there's people today that have no room for Jesus in their lives or in their hearts. So how must we respond? We must create a place for Him. We must create a place for Jesus in our life. And He must be number one. This place, first of all, is by faith. It's by faith. We must come to Jesus in faith just as the Magi did. Jesus wants our heart. He wants to move into our lives and He wants to make some serious changes. I like how one author captures it. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what He's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing and you... And so you're not surprised. But presently, he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably. It does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting it on an extra floor there. He's making completely different changes. He's running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage. He is building a palace. He intends to come and live there Himself. See, when Jesus comes into our life, He takes it over entirely. But we must continually submit to Him. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. By being filled with His Spirit. See, God places His Spirit within you in order to make you more like Him. Because we can't do it ourselves. So we must make sure that we are nourishing the Son of God or the Spirit within us by being filled with the Spirit so we will not satisfy that which the flesh desires. We can't just give Him a room but the entire house. He must become first in our lives. Now this place is by faith, but it also puts Him first. Puts God first. Just yesterday, my wife had, actually a few days ago, my wife had had a really good idea. When we sat down to open up our Christmas presents, I don't know what your tradition is in your family, but we usually go youngest to oldest. We have all the kids open up their presents, and then the older, the, the older adults open it up. But the first present we opened this year was different. We had taken our baby Jesus from the nativity scene and we wrapped him up. We'd open him because he's to be the first and foremost. He is the greatest gift that has been given to us. So we wanted to show that the reason that we give gifts is because God gave to us the greatest gift 
of His Son. We must put Him first. God is the Gospel. And Jesus is not just a portion of our life or a part of our life, but He is our life. As Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, he said, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. He is our life. He gives us His very life. He is the author of life. And He is the one that holds our life in the palm of His hand. He is everything. In Him is life and He is our life. In fact, He must become the foundation of our life. The foundation of our life. Jesus becomes the one who directs our life. Gives us purpose and direction. He is the one, the only one, who who can forgive our sin and help us in our time of need. He speaks to us through prayer and His Word, making His will known to us so that we might live for His glory. This baby does change everything. He is the one who came to identify with us, to take our sins upon, and sicknesses upon Himself, who suffered for us, who died for us, who died in our place, who took the wrath of God upon Himself, and He rose again that we might have new life in Him. This baby changes all of our lives, every single person in this room, either for condemnation or for salvation. We can never claim to be ignorant again, as the book of Acts tells us. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now He commands all people everywhere to repent, because He has fixed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom He has appointed, and of this He has given assurance to all by raising Him from the dead. He gives us hope. He gives us new life. This this baby changes everything in our life. And while it changes things that are a little uncomfortable at first, we know overall it's going to be better in the long run. Just as when we have children, we realize how selfish we are, and we love that child, but we would never trade that child. We would never trade that child because the child reveals something about who God is to us and who we are. It helps us to show how we, are, can, we can love another person and delight in another person. And we learn about our own sin and our own selfishness. And we learn how God loves, how God could love us as His child. First, He gave us His child. He gave us His Son that we might become sons and daughters of God through faith in that Son. That we would be adopted into His family. That we would receive the rights and privileges of God's children. That's an amazing picture. And then we can show our love to our children and we can see how God is working in their lives and how God loves. It's an amazing, amazing picture. How our children can reveal God's plan. How much we love them. We can see how much God loves us. How much God was willing to sacrifice for us. How much we, we can see that as we sacrifice for our kids. And we know that we would never trade. Never trade. At times we want to trade our children. We never trade our children. Ever. Because they are God's gift to us. Jesus is the greatest gift. He can't be ignored. He can't be overlooked. And He can't be stolen. In Livonia, Michigan, this past week, someone stole the baby Jesus from the nativity. You hear about this occasionally every year. Someone thinks they're being funny. They steal Jesus. Somehow they think that they can stop Christmas. But we can't. Some don't want Jesus in our world today or in our lives. Even CNN ran an article just yesterday on how atheists celebrate Christmas. How the non-religious, you can't. You can go through the motions, but you don't understand the meaning. 
can understand and enjoy the meeting. meaning. Jesus will not be ignored. It doesn't matter how we try and put Him off, ignore Him, reason Him away, or try and busy ourselves with all manner of things. He is Lord. He is the God who came to His humble creation for us. This baby changes everything. And are we delighting in this, this child that God has given? Not just the, the child in the, the manger, but the Savior who rules. The, the Savior who is the Messiah. The God who calls us to Himself. Has He changed us as individuals and as a church? Can we see His work in our lives? Changing us, honing us, bringing us closer to Himself, conforming us to the image of His Son, removing all of the the areas of unbelief and sin, the things that He doesn't want. So it's only through Him that we can have new life. We have to ask ourselves the question, have we repented of our sins and trusted in Him? Have we embraced Him as Savior and Lord? Are we living under His Lordship day after day? He came to this earth for us because of His love. If we believe in Him, come to Him, we know that He will save those who have those who come to Him in, in saving faith. And I know that there are some here that have not yet trusted in Him. Would you consider trusting in that, that Savior? The one who loved you so much that He came to die for you. He will forgive your sins and transform you. And for those of us who have been in Christ for a long time, let's continue to submit ourselves to Him, making Him the Lord of our lives and letting Him direct our paths to the delight of His name. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, You are the one who gave Your Son Because of your love for us, Lord, I can't imagine giving one of my children for my enemies. Lord, that's exactly what you did. You gave your son to identify with us. Lord, help us to unwrap the gift this Christmas of your son. To see the salvation that he has made available to each one of us. Lord, if there's someone here who has not yet trusted in you, Lord, I pray that you might glorify your name in them. You might grant them the repentance that leads to life. I pray that they truly might repent of their sins and embrace you. And Lord, for those who are harboring bitterness or ill will in their hearts that have claimed you as Lord and Savior, Lord, I, I pray that you might, you might hone us, each one of us, because Lord, we know how quickly unbelief can bubble up in our hearts. We know how quickly we can get sidetracked, Lord, as we get distracted by many different things within this Christmas season. Help us to behold again in all mysterious wonder the gift of your Son. Lord, we delight in you, and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.